Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Vilja Holden, the author of The Boss's Union, How Employers Organized to Fight Labor Before the New Deal. At the opening of the 20th century, labor strife repeatedly racked the nation. Union organization and collective bargaining briefly looked like a promising avenue to stability, but both employers and many middle-class observers remained wary of unions exercising independent power. Vilja Holden reveals how this tension provided the opening for pro-business organizations to shift attention from concerns about inequality and dangerous working conditions to a belief that unions trampled on an individual's right to work. Inventing the term closed shop, employers mounted what they called an open shop campaign to undermine union demands that workers at unionized workplaces join the union. Employer organizations lobbied Congress to resist labor's proposals as tyrannical, brought court cases to taint labor's tactics as illegal, and influenced newspaper coverage of unions. While employers were not a monolith nor all-powerful, they generally agreed that unions were a nuisance. Employers successfully leveraged money and connections to create perceptions of organized labor that still echo in our discussions of workers' rights. Vilja Holden is historian of the United States and a teaching associate professor at the Department of History at the University of Colorado, Boulder, whose work focuses on social and labor history around the turn of the 20th century. Vilja Holden, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks. Pleased to be here. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk today and for a really fascinating study of a very intriguing moment in American labor history. Before we jump into the text, let me ask first, what brought you to the subject of the turn of the century labor history and this per- particular story more specifically? Well... Um, I did my master's thesis ages and ages ago on immigration restriction in the 1920s. And one of the really sort of major themes that that those debates involved was trying to restrict immigration because they feared that the immigrants were being radical. And so they were so they were talking a lot about radical labor organizing and things like that. And so that got me interested in, oh, so what's this radical labor organizing? Is there like what's going on here? And I guess like. Uh, sort of, so I, I, I'd focused on the immigration restriction uh, issue from the perspective of the restrictionists. So I, I was trying to figure out, like, why are they trying to restrict immigration? How are they? How are these debates working? And I guess maybe sort of by analogy, I just just ended up doing the employer side of the, of the of the um, labor versus business battle. And I mean, for a long time. I didn't really much enjoy working on this. And certainly for my next project, I'm definitely planning to do people I like rather than people <laughs> who are like, know thine enemy. But um, but uh, but in the end, I, I did enjoy the process, like at the at the at the conclusion of the book, so to speak. I, I'm glad to hear you say that because it, it, one of the things that struck me about the book is is exactly what you just said. Uh, it must have been kind of challenging to spend some this much time with uh, people with this particular viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm. I think it's probably obvious from the book that I'm much more on the on the side of the unions, though I. Do you think, I mean, once when you start reading, when you read these employers' 
views over and over again. Sometimes there are things where you can where you can see, well, I mean, it's understandable. Of course they find unions frustrating. Of course they hate the unions. Like they are the unions are making their life really hard. Um, but these particular employers, I think, were were often quite challenging to to like I had to really bend over backwards to try to at least, you know, be fair to them because they are so often so very self-satisfied. And so they strike this note where this really kind of arrogant note where it's really hard to, you know, it's really hard to feel a lot of sympathy. Yeah, they're not a lovable bunch. Uh, so your introduction sketches out the argument of the book, and there's a terrific passage that concludes this chapter. I was wondering if you would read for us the last paragraph on page 17 to give our listeners a sense of what is at stake in the study. Okay, sure. So here goes. In the early 20th century, employers themselves arrayed into what amounted to bosses' unions, deployed a language of individual rights to discredit workers' organizations and reinforce government by the bosses. Their money and influence went a long way in helping these views spread, but they were also tilling a far from barren field. The quote-unquote element of democracy in industry that the Industrial Commission had thought might be developing was persistently undermined by the implicit assumptions of employers, reformers, and even some workers that only some people are capable and entitled to self-government. At the heart of this book is the sheer strangeness and fundamental anti-democratic tenor of the claim of the open shop movement and its modern heirs that unions are bad for workers and that workers' rights are really be better looked after by employers. It is quite an impressive feat in a democratic society to endow such a claim with credibility. This book tells the story of how it succeeded. And I want to get to that issue of um, basically disenfranchising workers uh, through their organizations when we reach the coda of the book. Uh, the first two chapters, though, describe what I understand as this kind of rhetorical device of the closed shop. And it's a device that sets the stage for the story that follows. Tell us a little bit about the phrase closed shop, where it came from, and how it came to shape discussions of union legitimacy in the U.S. Sure. So the closed shop is basically, basically means a union or a workplace where the workers need to belong to the union, at least a workplace where, um, or at least the workers in a particular craft, for example. If there's a union in the workplace, um, the the workers are supposed to belong to the union. In this early era, what it meant, what it included workplaces where you had a requirement to join the union within a set period of time. So you didn't necessarily have to be a union member in order to get hired. And for the as for the phrase itself, as far as I can tell, it was invented in about 1901, 1902, possibly by the National Association of Manufacturers, which is sort of one of the main players in the book. And it very quickly, like so, and there, there wasn't. It's not just that it replaced what what's sometimes referred to as the union shop. So a phrase that unions tend to use, the union shop. It's not just that it replaced that term, that term in itself doesn't seem to really have existed prior to the invention of the term closed shop. And so it described this practice that had been more or less standard by then for quite a while with unions, especially craft unions, uh, unions of uh, skilled laborers that that would require workers to join the union or build, be members of the union in a, in a unionized workplace. And the phrase the closed shop really, I think, deliberately tried to cast um, doubt or or aspersion on this requirement. Samuel Gompers famously said multiple times that, well, it it can it makes it associates unions with something that is closed and the employers with something nice that is open. And who doesn't like open instead of closed? You know, um, and. Uh, Employers themselves really employed the term to say, well, it's coercion. It forces unions 
to uh, join the union and it closes the shop against all these, quote unquote, independent workers who are not union members. So and I guess the modern equivalent would be this is going, you know, would be something like right to work, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So right to work is the is the phrase that we use these days. Um, in the Taft-Hartley Act, they actually craft like technical definitions of closed shop and union shop and closed shop becomes a term for for um, uh, the pre-hiring closed shop. So you have to be a union member when you're hired and union shop is a shop where you can join afterward, but you're still required to join. And right work becomes a popular phrase in the 1950s. It, they do use it in the early 20th century um, to an extent, but open shop is the is sort of their variant of the right to work. That, that, uh, the employers claim that our shops are open and anybody can, you know, we we hire anybody. Whereas the unions discriminate and coerce. So the the idea of the closed shop actually has a, a fairly deep history that you explore in chapter two. I was wondering if you could tell us some details about that history. Sure. Yeah, so I thought this was maybe like the most fun chapter to write in a lot of ways because so I had never really thought about the concept of the closed shop beyond this sort of employer um, use employer use of it as a cudgel. And so digging into the 19th century history of it, which I don't think has been written about much before, except in like little bits and pieces in, in different labor histories was really interesting. So it developed kind of organically. So of course the problem, so it develops among craft unions, unions of skilled workers. And originally really it's much, it's not really about employers at all. It's about protecting the quality of the craft, sort of a guild-like idea of, well, we have to make sure that the craft that we we have, this mystery of the craft, that it passes on and that the people who practice the craft learn it properly. And so there are all these requirements for who gets to practice a craft, who gets to be a carpenter or printer or so on and so forth. Like what, what level of education is required or level of training is required. And... Yep. Yeah, go ahead. An apprenticeship program. Pardon? It's like an apprenticeship program. Right. Yeah. So, so the so it, it's got it, it's related to the whole system of that comes from the medieval guilds of you have apprentices who then work as a number of years as apprentices who then then become journeymen and and train with different masters and then ideally become masters themselves. And it starts become becoming more union like when that process sort of breaks down and there's varying opinions on when exactly it breaks down and whether it ever actually functioned perfectly and so on. But basically in the uh, early, early 19th century, it becomes harder for journeymen to set up as masters. And so you start getting organizations that are like journeymen's organizations that then become sort of modern day unions eventually. And that's a history, of course, that, that lots of people have told. But this idea of the closed shop I mean, it really depends. It really is related to this logic of, well, so if you have, if you're going to make requirements, if you're, if you're going to dictate terms to your employer, well, you can't let the employer just fire everybody who is making these demands and hire new people. But as I said, even before that, it's really much more about the quality of the work and preserving the traditions of the craft. And so that's why it, it, it really grows in in the craft unions in particular. So somewhere between the outright conflict that we see between labor and management and a sort of complete acquiescence to management is the idea of the trade agreement. How are such agreements understood and what, in your words, were their potential and well as their limitations? Right. So trade agreements they become like all the rage around the turn of the 20th century. So as probably most people uh, who've ever read a labor history know, that was a period of really serious strife in really serious labor strife. 
So there's massive strikes and, and, and lots of labor radicalism and so on and so forth. And so sort of to calm the waters, people start suggesting that, well, how about like, wouldn't this idea of a, of a collective trade agreement be acceptable? And so unions themselves, some unions um, start advocating that idea. For example, the, the American Federation of Labor becomes a proponent of them. And in some ways, you could think of the trade agreement. So the idea of it in a trade agreement basically is we're going to strike a deal. Um, us, the union, the leadership of the union, the, the governance of the union, we're going to govern this, the workers. So we're going to say, OK, so you're not going to strike during this contract. And in exchange, the, the employer is going to give, give us something that we want, such as higher wages or better working hours or or safety matters or, and so on. So we're striking a deal. The employer gives us what we want. And in exchange, we're not going to strike during the contract. And so that, if it worked, would then calm the waters of labor strife and make things more predictable. So it's really popular in the early 20th century. And in some ways, it's a fairly radical proposition. It harks back to this idea of the craft governing itself, the workers governing themselves through a structure of, of, um, of representation within the union. And, and really, the, the closed shop it, itself had been, had been really steeped in this idea of governance, of, of governing the craft. And so the trade agreement becomes sort of the modern day uh, equivalent of that. So that, in that sense, it does have a lot of potential, and and also it's it takes it sort of takes root and becomes popular among quite a few reformers, as well as various government officials. So the Industrial Commission um, in 1901, 1902 really talks about this idea of democracy in industry that would be mediated through the trade agreement that the workers would have a say in the workplace via these unions that would strike these trade agreements with uh, employers. Uh, but the limitations are also fairly apparent fairly soon. And some unions, for this reason, some, some unions never really get interested in the whole trade agreement stuff because, of course, a trade agreement is useful only insofar as both parties hold to their side of the agreement. And for the union, their, their part of the bargain is we're not going to strike. So they're essentially going to give up the main power that they have by saying, well, we're not going to strike during the contract. Whereas the employers, well, what's going to be the penalty for them if they don't hold up to their side of the agreement, right? It's hard for the unions to punish them because, because, because of this whole deal that, well, we're not going to strike during the contract. Um, moreover, it makes it hard to have solidarity within the union, because a lot of times the, the rank and file feel like, well, you know, this is, things are not going as they should be. We have all these grievances against the employer, or maybe they feel that the employer is breaking the contract. And then the union leadership is in the position of essentially enforcing the contract on their workers. And there are several cases that people often cite when they when they berate the American Federation of Labor for its conservatism, for example, where the, the leadership of the American Federation of Labor brings in even even brings in strike breakers to uh, to punish workers who are striking during a contract. So they break a strike that that's illegal in terms of the trade agreement. I don't know if it's in this chapter or, or maybe further on in the book, but there's this fascinating um, way that the these business interests have of understanding um, the the people that they're dealing with in the labor movement. And, and it seems to go something like this, that there's a faction of them that per, basically have this idea that labor leaders can be dealt with. And it's the rank and file that's, you know, the, the, this problematic element. And then another discourse that seems to also sort of be weaving in the background that says, no, no, the leadership are all a bunch of crooks. And it's the good, honest, hardworking uh, rank and file that are the people that we need to represent. Yeah. So these are essentially like re represent two employer views of the, of the matter. And, and I guess the former is maybe not entirely employer, an employer view, the one that uh, appreciates the labor leaders more. 
it's especially promoted by Ralph Easley, who's the secretary and sort of the, the moving force of the National Civic Federation, which is this organization that tries to function as a tripartite organization, bringing together labor and business and then various reformers and government officials and, and, and sort of the intelligentsia. Um, and Easley is a huge proponent of the trade agreement. He really, really wants this to be the way that labor relations work in the United States. And to his credit, he understands that if the trade agreement is to have any power, then unions must have the closed shop. Like they must be entitled to the closed shop. And he defends the closed shop uh, on, on a few occasions, unlike many other reformers. But he's especially his idea and at least he hopes that that the idea of the employers who join the National Civic Federation is that, well, labor leaders are sort of like they're the, the you know, they're the aristocracy of labor, if you will. And I think, you know, so I teach a class on, on the first half of the American history survey. So colonial era to to um, to the Civil War. And just today we were talking about the American Revolution and the ways in which the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, um, the leadership of the of the revolution was really kind of conflicted about democracy, right? About whether people could be entrusted to rule, or whether you should like pick some some stratum of the people who, you know, men with property, for example, who would be a more reliable uh, uh, representative of the people. And this is sort of what the what the um, what Ralph Easley and and he's uh, his allies think about the labor movement is that you, if you pick these labor leaders um, and you pick the conservative ones, especially, then they will be like a good influence on the rank and file as well as be sort of, then you can sort of foster uh, labor business harmony by getting these labor leaders together with industrialists and, you know, captains of industry and you know, chatting together, and so they'll build a rapport and things will calm down. Now, the National Association of Manufacturers represents the employers who will have none of this. Who they, so they are the open shop employers who are absolutely against the closed shop, um, even as a concept. So they don't you know, pay any kind of lip service really to, to labor organizing or, or labor's right to organize. Um, and that's because it's their workers, it's their skilled workers who are organizing, and they are really dependent on those skilled workers. And they want nothing to do with the unions because the unions do, in fact, make their lives quite difficult. Sometimes these these guys are operating on fairly thin margins, margins, and so they so they feel like they can't really afford to give their workers more, and they definitely don't want to give up any power to their workers. And so they represent, it's in their interests to represent non-union workers as upright American citizens who just want to, you know, work hard and get ahead. And they have no interest in, in portraying labor leaders as trustworthy. So in addition to the, the sort of uh, short margins that some of these folks are, are working under, there, there are some other distinctions about from different organizations, different businesses that either sort of pragmatically grapple with unions and, and those who just reject them outright. Um, and you sort of map those out in, in the, in chapter four, I think it is um, the various levels of uh, acceptance or rejection of unions. Yeah. So, so for the national association of manufacturers and these really anti-union employers, um, it's largely a question of both the margins and the kinds of industries that they represent. So they're they're in they're often engaged in various kinds of custom production. They're in the metal industries. They really rely on skilled workers. And so, since it's particularly skilled workers who are organizing in this period, they really feel the crunch of, of that union organizing effort. Now, I think that is you know we need to think about what kinds of employers belong to the national association of manufacturers to understand why they become activists but i don't think we need to like need a particular explanation for why an employer you know any given employer is anti union <laughs> like i think all employers would get a re- re- would get rid of unions if they could <laughs> because it's just fundamentally not something that that is in their interests and a lot of times you know unions are a hassle it's true and so so why would an employer want to deal with that? Now, 
Then there are a category of employers in the early 20th century who, for various reasons, feel like they have to at least pay lip service to um, un to workers' right to organize and to you know trying to work with unions. And as far as I could tell, none of them are willing to do more than pay lip service. So there are some, you know, some exp some explanations have sort of run along the lines of, well, some employers, the larger employers, you know, they're really worried about socialism. And so they think of the labor movement as represented by the fairly conservative American Federation of Labor, which is not, you know, anti-capitalist. Um, they think of those organizations as a kind of a stopgap measure of, okay, we, we're going to deal with these guys so that we don't have to deal with the socialists or the communists or whatever, you know, they're, they're worried about revolution. There might be some of that, but for most of these employers, it's really sort of the pragmatic day-to-day -day stuff that, that, um, that governs their decision-making. So some of them are so, I mean, the, the, it does matter that some of them are large. So, so many of the ones that joined the National Civic Federation, which is this more conciliatory tripartite organization that Ralph Easley heads, the, many of the employers who joined that were large employers. They were in, um, so this is an era when we're talking about the trusts. And so there's a lot of public sort of opprobrium being cast on very, very large corporations. So they, it's a matter of burnishing your public image. Also, there's sometimes in industries where there's been a lot of scandals and corruption and, and you know, that are in the news all the time as, as being sort of engaged in various kinds of malfeasance, railroads or, or you know, municipal gas companies and so on. There's also various kinds of municipal schemes to have municipal ownership of, say, gas companies. And, and again, they want to sort of burnish their public image so as to head that off. Um, and they find the National Civic Federation useful on a number of levels, not having that much to do with labor. And sometimes, very pragmatically, it buys them time. So, so um, U.S. Steel, for example, famously has the Murray Hill Agreement with the uh, um, Metal Trades um, uh, the Metal Trades Union. And, uh, and it did, doesn't last very long. But during the life of the agreement, they sort of lay the groundwork for kicking out the union and then going open shop. And there's no consequences for them. Like the National Civic Federation doesn't kick out U.S. Steel or, or start to shun its, its leadership. So they sort of get the some of these really large companies get the best of both possible worlds by pretending to be willing to work with unions, but they, but the first chance that they get, they essentially kick out the unions. Yeah. Uh, so it seems to me that chapter five really fleshes out the title of your book, The Boss's Union, because it's here that we see how business owners organize to fight labor. And you use a fascinating example of St. Louis to illustrate the connections that allowed for the collective mobilization on the part of the owning class. What made St. Louis particularly interesting for this study, and what can we take away from its example? Well, so um, St. Louis is a, a sort of illustrative city for the National Association of Manufacturers, the kinds of employers that belong to that organization. They, they have a lot of members. The NAM has a lot of members there. And also St. Louis is kind of, it's a little bit east, a little bit west, it's a little bit north, a little bit south. So it seemed like a good example in those kinds of ways. Um, also, the NAM president from 1907 to, I think, 1911, James Van Cleve is from St. Louis. So it's a central city for, for the kinds of employers I was most interested in. But additionally, a very pragmatic thing, <laughs> there, they, there happened to be available as scanned PDFs a couple of... Um, one biographical compendium. So in the early 20th century, there's this cottage industry of these biographical compendia that lists little snippets of information about sort of the important people in a particular city. And then a membership, a, a set of membership lists for the social clubs in St. Louis. And so that allowed me to do a kind of an analysis that is not really accessible um, without those kinds of sources. So I was able to create a social network of the um, of the sort of elite of St. Louis and especially of its businessmen. And what I found interesting about that was that it really became clear 
And not that this is like a super novel and, and groundbreaking insight, but it does really clearly illustrate how well connected to each other those businessmen were, even without their organizations, even without creating these organizations. So if you think of sort of your your ordinary worker who's working in a factory, well, okay, so so he runs into the workers in the factory. He, he has some contacts with um, people in the in the neighborhood. Sure. So there's some basis for organizing in that way. But we also know that there's a lot of ethnic divisions and, and, and so on and so forth. And and there aren't. And also, like the, for the workers to organize, they really need to make sure that, well, they have the numbers because the numbers is what they have. Right? That's the only thing they have. They don't have like connections to important people and lots of money and so on. Whereas for these employers, what I found was that they belonged, a, a large number of them belonged to a whole bunch of social clubs that other employers also belonged to. Um, so they already were connected to each other via these pure, purely social club um, uh, connections. They also lived in the same neighborhoods as other employers did. So when you when you think about that and you start thinking about, okay, so what uh, here's a moment of let's see we have a bunch of i don't know five employers who want to really create an organization well they start mapping out the people they know and and boom they've already got like 100 people right so that they know that that might be interested in this and moreover in those same neighborhoods and in those same social clubs there were also lots of other people who matter so for example you know the mayor of the city or the or various uh, lawyers or state senators or us representatives or people like that so so they know that they if they organize and they develop a sort of platform of okay this is what we want to happen they also know that they easily can get that platform and those ideas in front of people who can make, who can bring the state's help to bear. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It, it's a really fascinating chapter, and especially the way that you map out both the, the geographical connections and um, the relationships that get built through the, the various social clubs. Um, I, you know, you talk about what you're teaching. I'm teaching right now a class in social movements. And one of the things that we sort of, I have a hard time describing to students is the process of organizing and, and the sort of face-to-face -face interactions that have to take place. And, and your chapter just does such a beautiful job of, of sort of illustrating uh, that. It's certainly on a different level than, than what I'm talking about, but um, just, just really a, a beautifully written chapter. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I thought it was a lot of fun building this, and I and I can't agree more about the about the importance of organization and the, and the need to really focus on how how people manage to get themselves organized. So, in the same class with the American Revolution, like yeah, it you know people make the assumption it's really hard to get students to realize that well, you know, the first moment that they protest some British policy is not the moment when they say independence, right? Right. So first of all, it's like it's a process, but also like it's not. It would never would have happened if it was just a lot of a lot of disgruntled people who said, "Oh, we don't like these British policies." You know, they build all these organizations, the committees of correspondence, the the eventually the Continental Congress, right? So all of these things are necessary in order for something concrete to take place. And the same thing is true, of course, for workers as well as for for employers. And and this chapter also contains some scenes of. Um... Uh, outright conflict, right? Where where these uh, so-called captains of industry are are uh, picking up arms and uh, going into the streets against workers. Yeah. So there's this is like my my little snippet of of this kind of behavior by employers. There's uh, Chad Pearson has a whole book on this called Capitalist Terrorists huh. on this kind of on this kind of behavior. But but so I mean it's kind of it's hard to imagine in some ways these days, like these very staid 
you know, middle class, upper middle class men going out to the streets to fight the workers, but they did. So during there was a streetcar strike in St. Louis in the early 20th century. And during the streetcar strike, um, first it was quite successful and uh, first at first it was also quite peaceful among the by the you know on the on the workers side and uh, because it looks like it's going to be effective the the uh, sheriff organizes these these sheriff's posses of private citizens and a lot a lot of lawyers and and businessmen volunteer including say for example the son of of um, of the chief of the Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company, so the makers of Budweiser. So his son, August, I think his name is August Bush, um, joined one of these one of these posses. And yeah, so they are there essentially like fighting with the workers on the street. They're, they, of course, portray it as, as um, maintaining order, maintaining right. law and order against the lawless workers. And, and certainly there were like disturbances caused by the workers as well. But yeah. But um but yeah so it's like this private private army and there are other cases like in in Chicago I think this happens repeatedly especially in in connection with the 1877 railroad strike and so on. Yeah. So the story then shifts slightly from this sort of outright conflict f- to efforts to co-opt the state in the battle against labor. How did capitalists work to use the state at various levels to repress unionization? Well, so the employers that I talk about they like some parts of the state and they really don't like others. And the parts that they like are the courts and, and the police. And the parts that they don't like are especially the legislatures. So because the legislatures are, of course, much more open to democratic popular influence, they are very down on legislatures. But they also understand that because labor is having momentum, labor ha- has quite a bit of momentum, legislature relatively in the early 20th century. So the American Federation of Labor is pushing the eight-hour bill and uh, and they're pushing um, uh, attempts to limit courts' ability to use injunctions against labor. So basically like forbid labor from using various kinds of tactics in its organizing and in its strikes. Um, because these are popular and because it looks like they are about to succeed even on the national level, Employer organizations like the National Association of Manufacturers really focus on trying to disrupt that process. So trying to find the places in the legislative process where they can exert pressure on sort of on individuals using sort of their more their their um, better social connections. So they so the National Association of Manufacturers sets out to essentially map the contacts of its members. So it sends out letters saying, which senators do you know? Like, do you have personal connections to this and that or, or the other senator or, or representative, especially for the labor and judiciary committees and for the Senate's steering committee or the sort of key members of the Senate? And their idea isn't that, oh, we're going to get the legislature to pass some laws that we like. Their idea is we're going to prevent labor from passing these bills that we don't like. And so for them, delay is is the same thing as success. As long as it doesn't get out of committee in this session or it doesn't get uh, voted on on the um, floor of the House or the floor of the Senate this session or the next session, then, you know, that's a, a minor victory. And we can just head off this whole problem of, of these laws as long as we keep them from ever coming to a vote. So that's how they that's how they make use of the state. And then they make use or that's how they sort of prevent labor from making any use of the state. And then they they themselves are they're not in any way like anti-statist. They're very willing to use the parts of the state that serve them. So they sponsor and and promote the professionalization and creation of stronger police departments. And they really emphasize the importance of the courts as a kind of a backstop to uh, to declare unconstitutional various laws that might benefit labor and also to use their injunction power to disrupt strikes. Um, so especially for the police issue, I mean, the key thing is, so some employers that are really, really big can, of course, afford to hire their own security forces. So the Pinkertons and so on are important in the late 19th century. But a lot of times the Pinkertons weren't quite as effective 
as they might have been. Also, they brought a lot of nasty publicity to the employers who used them. And the employers that that organize in the National Association of Manufacturers are not rich enough. They're not, you know, they don't have enough money to keep hiring Pinkertons. So they really rely on the state's police force to um, to help them break strikes and to help them help guard their strike breakers in particular. And, and there's a fascinating discussion here about how the police themselves were professionalized as part of this process. Yeah, so that really relies heavily on, on especially Sam Mitrani's work and, and then some older work. Um, the many of these businessmen's organizations, even like starting, especially starting with the with the eighteen seventy seven um, uh, railroad strike, really start to think about well, okay, so we need to have better police forces in this country to you know better local police forces, we, so that we don't have to like call out the national guard or we don't have to pay our own um, own. Um, uh, security forces. And in part, I mean, of course, the police, you know, they're workers, right? So, and a lot of times police have, the police had a, a working class background and sometimes not, you know, not necessarily that often, but sometimes police actually sympathized with striking workers and refused to, for example, help employers bring in strike, strike breakers or maintained order in an impartial way. And sometimes this was really, really an important you know, it, it could be a really make or break thing in a strike, whether, you know, what the attitude of the police was. And 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 the problem, of course, is that partly put the police are susceptible to to election, to power, the, to the results of elections. So a mayor, a union, pro-union mayor, for example, could direct the police force to act in a particular way. And the more professional a police force was the more sort of insulated the police force force was from any kind of politicking the more likely the employers found it that that they would be able to make use of that police force against striking workers because you know strikes cause all kinds of disruptions and it's of course true that sometimes strikers attacked strike breakers not just with words but also with um, blows and so that becomes obviously a police matter so like the battle for the state, there's a battle over public opinion as another front in the open shop movement. How did the um, adherence to the open shop idea attempt to mobilize public opinion against labor unions? Well, they really care about mobilizing public opinion. So the, the National Association of Manufacturers does have these various they send out periodic calls to their membership to make sure that they, their members are, you know, paying attention to what's being written to written about in the no, local newspaper, and they explicitly give them instructions like, you know, you should, if you see something pro labor being written, you should make a beeline for the office of the of the business manager and make sure that they understand that you're never going to advertise in this paper, and no other manufacturers is manufacturer is never going to ever going to ad- advertise in this paper if you keep printing these pro labor things. Um, so there's, they do have a concern for it, and they put out various kinds of pamphlets, and they put out their own magazine, and and so on. But I think, in a large way, they really kind of, I mean, the the the, to the extent that they have success, I don't know that it's necessarily because they have such a well-oiled publicity machine. It's it largely relies on this this association of the closed shop with coercion and of with the employers of, of the association between the employers and individual liberty and and the idea that well i mean you know you don't if you're a worker you don't want the hassle of a union like you don't want to have to deal with this third party as they say and they still do <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah exactly they still do that's that that i think that language and that notion is probably the most successful legacy of the National Association of Manufacturers, even though like in some ways it, it sort of dies down during the 30s and 40s and, and then has a rebirth in the 50s. But but it's really fascinating if you look at the language in the 50s and even today, like how how exactly the language matches, how 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 similar the rhetoric is. Um 
And I think partly it's also that labor has a really hard time fighting back. So labor in this period actually has a lot of newspapers. There are a lot of newspapers. There, there are, so in the early 20th century, there are lots more newspapers than there are now. And every town has their little, you know, or sometimes two, like weekly newspapers. And labor also has sort of labor newspapers. And they, those newspapers do talk about things like strikes and, and talk about the need to organize and, and give the pro-labor viewpoint. But that viewpoint has a hard time making itself into these sort of town newspapers, these town weeklies that it are, are the things that everybody reads. So if you're going to get the labor viewpoint, you have to essentially like, you have to get that particular newspaper. You have to know that you want that new, that viewpoint. It doesn't just sort of come on the side of your sort of daily news. And so the employers really benefit, I think, from the overall um, perception that, 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 uh, the labor unions are not in the mainstream of American life. Although in a lot of ways in the, in the early 20th century, they are more in the mainstream than they, than they have been in past decades. It, again, you, you write about these, these subjects in, in a lot of rich detail. And, and I especially enjoyed learning where the term boilerplate came from. Um, and, but I want to give our listeners a sense of, of some of that detail. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk to us about one of the more, um, well, one of the more interesting rascals, I suppose, in your story, uh, Martin Mulhall. <laughs> sure. So Martin Mulhall is the operative of the National Association of Manufacturers, and he's sort of, uh, he's the point man for all the underground, uh, covert ops that the National Association of Manufacturers runs. Now, I, I I mean, it makes for great stories, and I do think it's important. But I also want to emphasize that I think in some ways that it's not the covert ops that really make or break the deal. It's it's just sort of the overall. Oh, no, I, I'm not trying to give that. I'm not trying to get that impression. I, it's just yeah. he's an interesting yeah, but guy. It is, there are some good stories. So, Martin, yeah. so Mulhall is... Um, He's involved in various strike-breaking activities, for example, especially in the typographical strike. So in 1906, there was a big um, printer strike. And the printers are, you know, they're respectable. They're white. They're, they're all kinds of things that are sort of very American. They're, they're, um, they're reasonably well-to-do workers. And so they're striking for the eight-hour day. And the National Association of Manufacturers decides to throw its weight behind the Typothete, which is the employer's organization in printing. And so it sends Mulhall to spy on the workers to try to um, uh, to uh, convince workers not to join the strike, to spy on their organizations, to bribe them to, um, to not be part of the strike. And Mulhall spends quite a lot of money, especially in Philadelphia, on this effort, it's hard to gauge how successful it was. The printers in many cities do, in fact, succeed in the strike. In Philadelphia, they have less success, so Mulhall might might have made a difference there. But it's a really expensive proposition, and in the end, the the um, employers' organization in printing decides that well, it's not worth it. They're not going to like put their their um, own money on the line on this closed shop issue. They're just going to let people let their members do what they want. Um, Malha also gets involved in various elections, so especially to elect uh, Charles Littlefield. He creates these fake workers' organizations that pretend to be labor organizations, but they pretend to be for the um, for the um, for for this pro business candidate, and they and they um, claim that they are they they adopt much of the language of the National Association of Manufacturers and really talk about like the evils of the closed shop. And so they portray themselves as the organizations of independent workers with, you know, in a slight contradiction. Yeah. And in those electoral campaigns, for example, Mulhall does, he, he again bribes workers. He, in one, one case, he gets some of the workers so drunk that they can't go to the polls or possibly he plies them. It's unclear whether, whether that's the case or whether he plies them with whiskey so that they go and they vote drunkenly for the wrong candidate. Uh, and eventually he, uh, he's, he rats them all out, right? 
Right. So he turns <laughs> against the National Association of Manufacturers. Um, he had been really sort of the associate of Marshall Cushing, who was the NAM secretary until 1905, six, seven, thereabouts. So before James Van Cleve becomes becomes president, and Cushing himself is really kind of the kind of a similar character. He's he's a he's a kind of a back um, back behind the scenes operator who has lots of connections in in Congress and, and in the political world and, and really tries to sort of operate by stealth. And Mulhall is, is the same kind of person or has the same kinds of kind of experience. And so he's really sort of prominent in that era. And then there's a big falling out within the National Association of Manufacturers between Cushing and some of the, some of the new leadership coming in. And those people then end up firing Mulhall, who doesn't like it and decides to spill the beans. And so he he causes he actually is the reason that we know so much about the National Association of Manufacturers in the early 20th century, because as a result of his revelations, the Congress creates an investigation. And as a result of that investigation, they subpoena a lot of the documents, a lot of the letters and, and, and things that the National Association of Manufacturers had created as part of their sort of daily operations. And so those documents get preserved and are now actually available as PDFs online. Um, and, you know, without those documents, we would just have no clue about about what the National Association of Manufacturers got up to in this early period. None of them, none of them are in the, um, in the Hagley Museum that has the NAM's official records. Oh, uh, so the final full chapter examines a variety of employer schemes to circumvent labor union organizing, including personnel management and company unions. Indeed, I have to tell you that when I saw the title Bosses Union, I assumed that this was going to be about company unions. Um, I was especially interested here in the system devised by Goodyear. Can you tell us a little bit about what this looked like and what eventually happened to these kinds of interventions? Yeah, so 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 these things so the backstory is okay, so the National Association of Manufacturers had in the early 20th century been sort of really rabidly anti-union. And so over time they start thinking, well, you know, maybe this kind of language isn't really sinking in so well. Maybe we should try something softer. And and they start talking about things like personnel management and and you know, speaking a much sort of kinder, gentler language of giving your employers some kind of say in the in the company and finding finding ways to get the employer's input and so on, but without a union. And so by the time that we get to the 1920s, we of course have had World War One, the you know, to make this make the world safe for democracy. And so that gives further uh, a further boost to these ideas of we should have some kind of mechanisms for workers to have input in the workplace that and we should, you know, we shouldn't be like the Kaiser, we shouldn't be autocratic. And so they create these various systems. And Goodyear's Industrians is really kind of, it's probably the most elaborate of these. And it creates a kind of full setup of a worker senate and, and, a, and, a, and a house and, and, and a structure within the company where the workers supposedly have a lot of governance influence. Um, now, these things don't tend, like, even even when they're operational, there's, of course, always sort of the, the employer always has the veto, the right, of, the, the veto right of saying, okay, so sorry, you can vote for that, but we're not going to actually do it. Um, some people have argued that company unions actually do get things done effectively. And maybe, you know, why not? But sometimes they, they can have an impact on the workers' lives. But the problem with them, of course, is that they are always subject to the employer's approval. They don't have an independent source of power, unlike a, a national or a, an actual trade trade union. And, and over time, they just keep, employers keep running into this contradiction of, well, I want to look nice, but I don't actually want to give these unions a lot of power. And so so they find that um, sometimes creating a company union or having these kinds of uh, employee representation schemes within the company just gets the employer, employees um, kind of fired up about participating and makes them actually more likely to then start demanding things like unions because they, because they want to participate. 
they realize that they they you know they can actually govern things and they can can make up their own minds and so maybe they should just join the union and that's probably a good jumping off point for the coda of your book that reads to me as a kind of plea for a reinvigorated and participatory union movement why do you think the unions play such a vital role in a functioning democracy well unions I, I mean, I think it really relates to democracy overall. And conceivably, it could be something other than a union, but it's hard to, you know, pinpoint exactly what that would be. But but the sort of basic idea, basic the, the reason that the trade agreement in the early 20th century got popular to begin with is that there is this fundamental contradiction in a democracy of, well, you have you're supposed to have a democracy in which people have power over their lives, yet there is this huge chunk of their lives, their working life, in which they have no democratic control. So you're entirely, you're, you're, you apply for a job with a particular employer and then you work there and the employer make, makes the rules. Like maybe they have like a suggestion box somewhere, but you don't actually have any say in what happens in those eight to 10 to 12 hours that you spend at work. So in a lot of ways, I do think that's a really kind of fundamental contradiction in a, a country that claims to be a democracy. And, and again, this was something that they, they talked about even during the revolution. How can you have a political democracy without having some semblance of economic democracy? And I think the problem tends to be, and this is, of course, a problem also in politically, in the political non-work aspects of democracy, is that People like to pay a lot of lip service to democracy, but they don't necessarily like power being exercised by people they don't like, right? People who they don't think are as educated as themselves or as smart as themselves or as thoughtful as themselves. And this was the case with employers in the early 20th century. This was the case with some of the labor leadership in the early 20th century. You know, we, we craft workers are smart enough where we are educated enough. We are thoughtful enough to have a union and have craft governance. I don't know about those immigrants <laughs> and women and African-Americans and, and the unskilled laborers, you know, they, they might not be quite up to the scratch. Um, similarly, a lot of reformers who spoke about unions favorably tended to balk at the closed shop, partly because they thought that it restricted individual liberty, but also partly because they saw it as a, the unions as a, as a moment when the that or as a feature that allowed the unions to exercise power on their own account without sort of appealing to the state or appealing to reformers, they were exercising their power through the strike, and and, they, and that was effective because of the closed shop. Um, so, so the so I think somewhere in the book I try to make the case that or I yeah. try to use a, use the phrase that well democracy is like free speech in that it only counts if you're willing to give it to people you don't like. <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't really matter. It's not free speech and it's not democracy if it's only the people that you approve of who get to yeah. use it. And I'm just going to point out, I, this is uh, sort of a plug for uh, this podcast, that um, you the the idea that you know in a democratic society we sort of check our democratic rights at the door of the workplace um you borrow a little bit of that from uh elizabeth anderson's work on private government and, right she uh, has this wonderful phrase of like all all these all these companies are really you know communist dictatorships in our midst because yeah. they're 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 they work within the within the um within the company and you have no say whatsoever yeah, uh, I, Dr. Anderson, uh, I talked to her on a, on a previous podcast, and I'm going to be talking to her about her new book in a couple of couple of months. Oh, great. I'll listen to that. Um, so recognizing that the boss's union has just been released, I wonder if you'd like to tell us what we might expect from you next. What are you working on? So I'm working on a, a digital history project of sorts. So I, I'm it's building on the similar kinds of on, on similar kinds of themes. So I have this data from congressional records uh, or congressional uh, hearings, rather. So as you may know, the Congress holds hearings on all kinds of things and has done so for its whole existence. And it is possible to get the data on those hearings. So both the metadata, so the 
names of the witnesses and the organizations they represented and so on, and the committees at which the, they testified for that whole period, for the whole life of the Congress. And it's also, the full text for that is also available. So I'm hoping to, um, so I'm working on doing, uh, trying to understand who gets represented. So I'm calling it speaking to the state, you know, who gets to speak to the state and what do they say when they do. So for example, when, at what points in time have labor organ organizations been able to appear before Congress with greater fre frequency? Um, when, how, what, what this has the balance between labor organizations and business organizations looked like in, at these congressional hearings over time? Um, that, that's sort of the part that I've worked the most on so far and that I've got a couple of older publications on that. And then I'm also interested in looking at the full text and using various kinds of methodologies, methodologies to understand how, for example, words change over time, the meaning of words changes over time. So does, you know, work or democracy, does it mean the same thing in 1880 as it does in 1940? Um, does it mean the same thing when it's being is a job used in the same kind of a context by workers' organizations as by business organizations? So that's, I'm, I've actually gotten an NEH grant, I got an NEH grant to work on that a little while back, and I've gotten a con continuation grant to work on that more next fall. So hopefully something will come together of that. Well, it sounds fascinating. I'll look forward to uh, to seeing that when it comes out. Um, it, it, and you know, it's interesting. I the the whole congressional testimony just jogged my memory. I wrote a book, and one chapter looks at congressional uh, testimony on the unionization of college athletes. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. and and the fascinating thing you just just what you said was just what what just struck me is that at no point during those hearings did a college athlete speak. <laughs> everyone everyone was speaking for them, uh, but we never actually heard the voices of the of the uh, any of the people who were going to be affected by the decisions that were being made. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, well, Vilja Holden, thank you again for taking the time to talk today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to discuss this book with you. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for being interested. Once again, my guest today has been Vilja Holden, the author of The Bosses Union, How Employers Organize to Fight Labor Before the New Deal, a volume in the series The Working Class in American History from the University of Illinois Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network. <laughs>